0: Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be acceptable in thy sight. In Jesus' name we pray. And all be seated. In the Baptist tradition, for y'all have made the classic blunder of letting a Baptist into a pulpit, only slightly less well-known than the blunder of going in against a Sicilian when death is on the line, (laughs) I will be making references to at least one country song. Hopefully I will also hit on some actual exegesis and applications to personal life. However, I will attempt to avoid the other Baptist tradition of talking for so long that the first lunch seating fills up with more timely denominations like the Catholics. One of the perennial challenges for me of writing any Bible study or a sermon like this is how difficult it can sometimes be to figure out how to apply certain principles and ideas to the modern world, which is a somewhat different world than the one that Abraham and Sarah lived in. I often hear repeated in discussions in pop culture of historical context that Cleopatra lived closer to the invention of the iPhone than to the construction of the Great Pyramid of Giza. I looked this up and it's true. I find it interesting to reflect here, particularly given the passage from Hebrews, speaking of the life and obedience of Abraham and Sarah, that Jesus and the writer of Hebrews, whoever that might be, lived almost exactly equidistant between our time and the time of Abraham and Sarah, who by rabbinic tradition and some back calculation probably would have wandered Canaan in about 2000 BC. That's 500 years after the construction of the Great Pyramid. And about 4,000 years before the invention of the iPhone. In short, a lot of history happened between Abraham and us, and about half of that happened before Jesus and the writer of Hebrews. To my point, a lot of water has gone under the bridge and a lot of context and culture with it. What I often find myself doing, having lost some of the essence of the original stories, is, aside from trying to recapture as much of that context as I can, comparing passages across the Bible, looking for the foundations that underlie all of them and the contrasts that make them distinct from each other. So what have we here today in our lectionary? We have a passage from Isaiah, the prophet who may have been himself a member of the royal family, a cousin to the Judean kings through and about whose reigns he prophesied, not long before the destruction of Judah and the taking of captives to Babylon. We have the writer of Hebrews, who lived somewhere in the vicinity of 60 AD before the destruction, yet again, of Jerusalem, this time at the hands of the Romans. And then we have Luke, the only one we really know a decent amount about. He started from Damascus, one academic center of the ancient world, reportedly studied medicine in ancient Alexandria, another academic center, and somehow ended up traveling writing the histories of early Christianity. There's a unified concept, a unifying concept, that I noted intertwined through all of their ministries and all of the lessons that we've cited here today in the lectionary. That concept is this. This is not our real home. It's a strange thought. The Bible starts out with our creation from the soil, but that was in the garden, in fellowship with God. When we broke the universe, we were cast out of our homeland God's garden, whatever the physical location of that potentially metaphysical place might be, and doomed to wander. Over and over, the Israelites reenact the cycle. They're cast out, doomed to wander back into the place that God has set aside for them. Then they drift into exploitation, disobedience, idolatry, and yet again are cast out, taken captive by Egyptians, Babylonians, Romans left to subsist as a people in a temporary home. Isaiah opens with a withering condemnation of those who, in the home that was designed for them, regularly offer up sacrifices and reliably celebrate every religious event while continuing to live life in a fashion that leaves blood on their hands. One of those festivals, ironically enough, is the Festival of Boots. This is still celebrated today, Jewish families relocate to camp out under the night sky under thatched-roofed booths, to remember their time of wandering, the life of impermanence from which God delivered them to the promised land. In Isaiah's time, they're doing this, but they're not protecting the widows, the orphaned, the oppressed. They're not caring for the foreigners in their midst. They are not living justly. Do not trample my courts anymore, the Lord commands and laments. We have all read before of the hypocrisy of the Pharisees, donating a tenth of every herb, but without faith or love. They came by their hypocrisy from a long line of entitlement that we can trace back through Isaiah's speech here, verbally immolated in no uncertain terms by him and his colleagues, who witnessed the people of Israel treating inheritance as though it was deserved, reserved solely for their use, for eternity, simply because Abraham loved God loved Abraham. As Tyler pointed out two weeks ago in his sermon, during this period, the Judeans were living in an exploitative, top-down economy, perhaps not too different than some aspects of modern market economy, where the so-called great and good owned the resources, used their countrymen for labor, exhausting the soils through poor farming practices, and abusing the poor for trade and expansion of empire. The tithes and the temple were being used to serve those who could speak for themselves. My courts, says the Lord, this is not yours, he reminds them, taking wages from their fellow servants, using supplies and resources of the master's storehouses for indiscriminate gain. This is not how people ought to be living who are stewarding their master's belongings and people. Judea is just their temporary home. Hebrews speaks of a life as temporary stewards and travelers more explicitly. All of these died in faith without having received the promises, but from a distance they saw and greeted them. They confessed that they were strangers and foreigners on the earth. For people who speak in this way make it clear they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of the land that they left behind, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God. Indeed, he has prepared a city for them. The writer speaks of many saints here, although our focus is on Abraham, which is why I led with a refresher on his chronicity. I chuckled a bit when the commentary I was reading focused exclusively on Abraham's unfailing blind obedience. Abraham, like his wife Sarah, who is also praised in this section of Hebrews, his descendants Moses and Jacob, the collective Israel, Peter, Paul, Jesus' brother James, all are almost as famous for arguing with God as obeying him which I might argue is appropriate because you can't argue with someone you don't have a real relationship with. But where he did obey most faithfully, other than perhaps his willingness to sacrifice Isaac, was his willingness to move his whole life and everything in it, to pack up his tents and his livestock, to go to a land that was, especially after his cousin chose the better side of the tracks, dry and barren. Even in this place that he was promised, instead of establishing a permanent life, he continued to live as a nomad passing through because he trusted God's word and provision for the future. Our first model of living out the truth that this is our temporary home. It's easy to take the stories about the highlights of a great person's life like the patriarchs and say we ought to be like this story right here. To use a favorite phrase of mine, you can't compare your behind the scenes footage to someone else's highlights reel. The Bible graciously gives us both that we may not be discouraged beyond bearing, perhaps why we are regaled with so many stories of patriarchs having arguments with God. Jesus, good educator that he is, gives us a little less lofty target, a comparison of who to be that's a little more on our level. He calls us little flock, which apparently from my reading actually uses the double diminutive, so in Greek it's we little flock, how small we are in the scheme of things. He tells us to be like servants, ready for our master coming home from the feast. Only some versions translate it this way, uh, and we saw it as fasten your belt, but Jesus uses the term gird your loins. This is often repeated in fiction today, especially in movies, as though it implies some kind of armor. It's actually not a military term at all. Middle Eastern men then, as now, wore long robes. Jesus is likening readiness to hiking up your skirts to get ready to run. It's not elegant, not how you would entertain company, and in fact shameful in public. I've heard it said before that in the tale of the prodigal son, it's significant that the father ran to meet his lost son, not merely for emotional impact, but because any man would be exposing himself to censure to run burying his legs immodestly to lookers-on. What Jesus is asking us to do and be is not about getting ready to debate a point or win a war. It's about breaking yourself down to serve. In turn, Jesus promises the master of all will gird up his loins and serve his servants. Not an empty promise from the Son of Man, who very soon thereafter did the literal same to wash his own disciples' feet. I was a little puzzled when studying this gospel passage about the transition from this call to be like servants waiting for the master to return to the brief line about the owner not knowing when the thief will come, particularly given that afterward Jesus transitions back into a longer elaboration at Peter's request of what it means to be a faithful servant and steward. Tyler's sermon two weeks ago gave me a few ideas. At first I wondered How many people of Jesus' original sermon were upper class? We're often reminded many of his followers, maybe most of them, were of modest means, even marginalized. But certainly not all of them. And I wondered if some of them could not begin to imagine what the life of a faithful servant is like from the inside, as they were accustomed only to the role of master and homeowner. And that perhaps this is a reminder to them of the consequences of unreadiness from a perspective that they could understand. But where Tyler's sermon inspired me was thinking about the fact that Jesus' metaphor for our lives is of servants living in a home that is not our own. We're holding it in trust for the master, caring for its investments, fostering its crops, a recurring metaphor that appears in many of his parables of our role as custodians of his kingdom on earth, preparing the fields for him to reap the harvest of saints he is coming back for us and for what we've planted, and if we greet him as we ought to, as his stewards, so excited for his arrival that we're staying up late into the second and the third watch, he will greet us in return with great joy. If we treat our time here as if we are the owners, as if it is our house, then yes, the master's return will feel to us like thievery. God does come to steal us away from that which we have stored away here on earth, because we were storing the wrong things in the wrong places all along. So what does this look like for us? What strife comes from living our lives as if this world belongs to us and is our birthright? I immediately think of ideas like uh, the prosperity gospel of how doing good earns good like it's our wages because it makes a carrot out of material ownership and a stick out of grief and brokenness. Things like the idea that we own this world and that we're here to inherit it tell us that we can make our businesses and our families, our country, our world, successful by our own definition if everyone is just righteous enough, which more often than not ends up with us all just trying to make everyone else follow the right rules. I think of religious wars, environmental destruction, exploitative employment practices, acrimonious politics about charity or government spending it might pay for the wrong ideas benefit the wrong center we want everything to happen on our own terms when we act as if this world belongs to us i love how my mother taught me this as it applies to our families and our personal lives and yes she's sitting here listening to me talk but i put this in before i knew she'd be here My mother from early in my youth taught me that my belongings were not mine. They were gifts from my earthly father. And that in that sense, all the things that surrounded us in our home that were gifts from my earthly father weren't really his either. She taught me that I and my sister were not hers to own, but gifts from the heavenly father. And that she was given to us to steward our lives for him. This is true of all the relationships, resources, and callings God gives us we are not guaranteed what we have, whether it's a marriage, a job, simply tomorrow. I've had the opportunity this year myself to walk alongside a lot of patients and families going through what one might call the valley of the shadow of death, which they may come out on more alive than ever or in God's kingdom. And I found it to be a greater privilege than I would have ever anticipated, a place and a time where the reminder that we're merely passing through takes greater significance. I've seen the suffering that comes from holding too tightly to what we think belongs to us here. A key part of remembering this is our temporary home and that we have another home beyond is also remembering the temporary part. We have to let this urgency, our temporality, compel us in every decision to act as though the master is just about to walk in the door and find us in the midst of things. I promised a country music reference For those of you who haven't gotten the callbacks yet, I'm referring to Carrie Underwood's temporary home. She narrates the story of four people, a little boy in a foster home, a woman and her baby girl in a halfway house, and a man at the end of his life, all of whom are reflecting on why they're not afraid of their own circumstances. You'll forgive me for not singing it, but it goes, this is my temporary home. It's not where I belong. Windows and rooms that I'm passing through This is just a stop on the way to where I'm going. I'm not afraid because I know this was my temporary home." I talked about where Jesus goes with his sermon after the part about the thief, but I didn't mention where he came from immediately prior. Before this passage is the passage colloquially entitled, Do Not Worry, in which he tells us not to worry about tomorrow, what we'll eat or drink. He tells us not to fear the inevitable, for we are powerless to change the hairs on our head, much less the larger events happening around us. This is not to say that we shouldn't seek to make the world better. After all, how many miracles did Jesus do in his ministry? But it does tell us that we're not to approach our calling, whatever that may be, with fear. We often think, as the owners, we must be the ones who have agency and power in this world, that if we're not making the right laws, witnessing to the right people, fixing the right problems, that God's plan for the world will fall apart around us, that will have marred the grand design somehow. How silly we are, we little flock, just tie up your skirts, gird your loins, do your best to get ready to work for the master. He's coming home, and he knows exactly what to do.